0: My name is Kathy G. Johnson, and I'm E. Remus Jackson.
1: We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts.
0: My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic,
1: and I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 through students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, is out now from First Second. You can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD
0: student in the University of Florida's English and Museum Studies program. My research focuses on comic studies and critical prison studies, and I also make self-published comics.
1: Awesome. And on this episode of Drawing a Dialogue, episode 21, we are talking about labor and capitalism in comics.
0: Yeah, in honor of Mayday.
1: Yeah, can you tell us what Mayday is, E?
0: Yes, so Mayday is an international public holiday that celebrates workers,
1: basically. Yeah, and so just like um, really bringing awareness to what workers do for, mm-hmm. like, when as a citizen of the United States, there are daily many workers that we run into um, who are doing different services and doing different tasks. Um, and so it's just a day to bring awareness um, to how many workers are in our lives every day.
0: Yeah. So you've written, like, a really nice, uh, long introduction for us. Cause we sort of want this to be like the baseline episode. Cause we talk about labor a lot and we gesture towards it, but we've never mm-hmm. actually sat down and like defined everything and set parameters for what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. It almost is like, feels like a sort of a, Tying together of a lot of different threads that we had Mm -hmm. While I was doing this research It really felt like I was like Oh, this pulls together this um, topic from that episode This pulls together this episode This pulls together this episode And it felt like really neat So I'm really excited to finally just have a dedicated episode To the topic of labor theory and capitalism Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: I thought it was also interesting I just wanted to mention how it feels like My theory for Marxism and capitalism is vague, but I almost have a working knowledge, almost as everyone in the United States or in the world might actually have a working knowledge of what that is, of what we mean by labor and what we mean by capitalism, just because all of us have been workers in some way or another.
0: Yeah, yeah, I am... Like, I've never sat down and properly read Marx, although that's, like, one of my goals for the summer, but I, I mean, I'm in, I'm in a union, I, uh, do a lot of activist work, and, like, I'm in a heavily Marxist department, and I read a lot of people that work with Marx, so I feel like just through osmosis, I've sort of, I understand a lot.
1: Yeah, and I feel similarly, it's just from, from the theorists that I've read, the philosophies mm-hmm. that I've read, and also just activist work. yeah. I also feel really unusually familiar. And actually, when I was writing this introduction for us, I was like, oh, of course. Like, I was like, oh, this all makes a lot of sense to me because this is already things I knew. It's just someone had written it down. Yeah, yeah. So I, as E had just mentioned, I did write us sort of a longer introduction because I felt like it was really important to genuinely define labor and capitalism. And, like, actually talk about the different words that we use and what Marx specifically was referring to using these words. Yes. Yeah, because I actually think that will be useful moving forward in drawing and dialogue and moving forward in future discussions to genuinely have like a shared definition, right? Yes, 100%. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these um, different terms, these different definitions from Purdue. I'm going to share the link um, in the show notes. Um, So the first definition that I have is capitalism. Right. Capitalism is a socioeconomic system based especially on private ownership of the means of production and the exploitation of the labor force. Mm. Okay, So there are people who own means of production, and then there are people who labor under that production, right?
0: Yeah, and by production, you're referring to means of production like the actual, the way that we're able to sort of make goods and services, right?
1: Yeah, goods and services. So, um, a, a worker in, I mean, obviously, and under Marx, he's talks a lot about factories, but a worker in a factory doesn't own the machines that they run. Right, right. That's sort of the basic. I was actually talking to my friends about comics and about how, even though I'm the one who's creating the comic, I'm not, um, We're going to talk about alienation. So I'm not alienated from that comic that I'm making, but the people who are work at the printing press. Right. It are alienated by it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we actually, I'm going to jump ahead and just talk about alienation, right? So alienation is the process whereby the worker is made to feel foreign to the products of his or her own labor. Right. The creation of commodities need not lead to alienation and can indeed be highly satisfying. One pours one's subjectivity into an object and one can even gain enjoyment from the fact that another in turn gains enjoyment from our craft. But in capitalism, the worker is exploited insofar as he does not work to create a product that he then sells to a real person. Mm. Instead, the proletariat works in order to live, in order to obtain the very means of life, which he can only achieve by selling his labor to a capitalist for a wage, Mm. as if his labor were itself a property that can be bought and sold. The worker is alienated from his or her product precisely because he or she no longer owns that product, which now belongs to the capitalist who has purchased the proletariat's labor power in exchange for exclusive ownership over the proletariat's products and all profit accrued by the sale of those products. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So this is actually, yeah. this should be very familiar to all of us, right? Yeah. So what's important is that Alienation doesn't necessarily happen just from being a worker. You can enjoy creating something. You can enjoy giving it to someone. But alienation comes from when the laborer has nothing to do with the product that they're creating. They do not own it. It is not theirs. They do not know who receives it. Right. right? That's the full alienation. Um, so I'm going to go back and actually define proletariat. Mm-hmm. Um, so the proletariat is the lower or working classes the members of which must, under capitalism, sell their labor in order to earn a living. Since the members of the proletariat do not own the products of their labor and do not have free access to the means of production or to the means of communication, they are alienated both from the products they produce and from each other. Mm -hmm. And then the bourgeois or the bourgeoisie is the middle classes. Right. Right. And then we're going to talk about commodity and commodification, which are two different things. Okay. So commodity is an external object, a thing which through its qualities satisfies human needs of whatever kind. That's something that Marx said. And is then exchanged yeah. for something else. When Marx speaks of commodities, he is particularly concerned with the physical properties of the commodity which he associates closely with the use value of an object. Okay, it's going to get a little nitty-gritty. However, use value does not automatically lead to a commodity. He who satisfies his own need with the product of his own labor admittedly creates use values, but not commodity. In order to produce the latter, he must not only produce use values, but use values for others social use values right so you aren't if you're doing labor for your own benefit for your own satisfaction of your human need you aren't producing a commodity
0: right so if a farmer like uh has chickens for themselves to eat the eggs that's not a commodity because they're just feeding Yeah, you're just
1: feeding your own human needs yep yeah. Um, and then note that a commodity can refer to tangible things as well as more ephemeral products. It, they, an example, they offer a lecture. Thank you, Purdue. Right. What matters <laughs> is that something be exchanged for the thing. So a commodity exists when an exchange takes place, right? So the farmer, if they're eating the egg, that is does not a commodity. But however, if they sell the egg in order to receive money then that becomes a commodity. There's an exchange that happens.
0: Yeah. And as a more abstract example, TAs, <laughs> teaching is a commodity at the university. Mm-hmm. Well, in general, but yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. And then our last term to define is commodification, which is the subordination of both private and public realms to the logic of capitalism. Okay? Okay. So both private and public realms end up becoming engulfed by the logic of capitalism. Right. So in this logic such things as friendship, knowledge, women, etc. are understood only in terms of their monetary value. Right. In this way they are no longer treated as things with intrinsic worth but as commodities. They are valued that is only extrinsically in terms of money. By this logic, a factory worker can be reconceptualized not as a human being with specific needs that, as humans, we are obliged to provide, but as a mere wage debit in a businessman's ledger mm. which is very familiar isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yes. a worker to the bourgeois to the person who owns the business the worker is only right. a a debit to their bottom line right their wages yes. is the debit to their bottom line and they lose their value their intrinsic human value Mm -hmm. right yeah so that is the commodification of something so those are all the definitions that we have used before and that we are going to use in the future but it felt really important to our introduction in order to really talk about what labor is what the proletariat worker is and what this alienation from labor and from commodity is.
0: Yeah. I think it's really important to have those sort of laid out clearly.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, So now we're going to move into E's section. Um, My section is going to be a bit different because I'm going to move into um, sort of theory about art and production and what worker, what, who a worker is when they are also an artist which is also what E is going to be talking about. Artist workers.
0: Yes. Yeah. So what I really wanted to do for this is sort of, well, borrow Kathy's format of using a timeline. Um, <laughs> and and I what I really wanted to focus on was artists that are in the employee of a company. So not independent cartoonists or people who are like self-publishing or zine makers or anything like that, but people who are employed by like a larger publishing company uh, or artist studio and sort of like bring us through those conditions and what they have been historically. So that's sort of where my focus is. And I'm going to start. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to be starting in the 1930s. So Um, This would be very, very early. I'm also not talking about comic strips. I know we've talked about like kind of the wobbly history between like comic books versus comic strips. Um, And I'm not really talking about like illustration. I'm focusing sort of specifically on comic books. So (laughs) um, when they were first packaged and like sold. Yeah,
1: which is something that we've talked about. This is you're also talking specifically about North America, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. So comic books start in the 30s, right? In North America?
0: Yeah. Okay. And they sort of come out of pulp, and the idea was that people would just take the strips and package them into books and then sell them to newsstands. Right. So the structure of employment in the 1930s um, was sort of called these assembly line studios. The word sweatshop gets used a lot. So this is from – Paul Lopez's uh, Demanding Respect, The Evolution of the American Comic Book, which was published in 2009. So, assembly line production of comic books meant that quality and speed were the primary goal of publishers and artists. The new field was mostly filled with very young, working-class artists willing to work under less than ideal conditions, intent on producing as much as humanly possible in order to generate a living. Um, During the boom... (laughs) This is an interesting way to put it. Young artists reveled in the excitement of a new industry and in finding a livelihood at a time when few options were available to him. them.
1: <laughs> because so they, it was the Depression. Everyone quest- was super amped on jobs. Yes.
0: <laughs> right. They never questioned, however, the working conditions of the field where the publishers paid simple page rates and retained all ownership of an artist's work. So I wanted to start off with this quote because there's some very interesting phrasing um, <laughs> that was i noticed recurring so finding research like a lot of what i was doing right when looking at this history was trying to parse through uh a lot of the research on it focuses specifically on the market so like this is how much publishers were selling this is how publishers were selling to who and this is the economic model not so much focused on the actual like conditions
1: yeah i almost even want to say that's still true like we're talking about how off, how yeah. well things are selling and who's buying all the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. But part, when they do talk about the conditions, there is this sort of uh, rosy... Uh, nostalgia almost of like oh like it was young artists with no formal training who were happy to be part of an assembly line where they got no credit and i'm like that cannot be true like like i have read quotes from artists that were working at the time that's
1: what that's (laughs) why i said i was like yeah they're well i guess they would be happy because then they are actually making money during the depression (laughs)
0: right yeah So I don't know. It's interesting.
1: It also is sort of blaming them. They'd never questioned it. Are are you sure?
0: (laughs) Yeah, like I'm sure they did. I mean, and this is the thing, like, uh, so continuing on from this book, this is another quote. Um, In the collective memory of comic book fandom, many early comic book publishers were not a particularly generous or honest lot of businessmen. Comic book fan and science fiction writer Ted White, 30 years later in 1970, minced no words when he claimed, quote, comic book publishers were all in all a thieving, grasping lot. Not to dwell too long upon the point, they were crooks. The first rule was, do it cheap. Find cheap labor, find cheap prices, low overhead, tie up as as little money as possible. Gerald Jones, while less fanatic, certainly confirms that publishers were mostly hard-driven businessmen oriented to the less-than-above-board practices inherited from the tough industry of pulps. Comic book historian Mike Benton also notes the slate of hand tactics publishers employed, including publishing under a variety of names and imprints for financial and legal reasons. So clearly people were talking about the fact that the conditions (laughs) were bad. <laughs> but yeah, so the system at the time was largely freelancing artists and what were called sh- comic book sh- uh shops, not shops in the sense that we think of them now. Yeah. But shops that were uh basically studios where multiple artists would work in sort of an assembly line fashion, so you'd have one person penciling, one person inking, one person coloring and they would just sort of like pass it down the line. Mm-hmm. And you didn't get credit, so there was no names. Artists and writers and things weren't cred- credited, and they would actually often like uh just make up names to make it seem like more people had done things for the company than actually did, <laughs> yeah. And the way, and then what would happen is the publishers would buy the prepackaged comics that were made by the shops and the freelancers, and then Repackage them and distribute them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't like contracts or anything either. This was all very. Uh, s- eh. And then uh, based on my like, this is I think also from Lopez's book. Um, the rates, although I've heard like varying figures, um, but basically roughly um, the rates were two dollars to ten dollars based on per page or weekly salary. The average earned ten to twenty dollars a week.
1: Um, do you have conversion for that in modern day? Oh, for inflation? Let's see.
0: Okay, so here is a calendar. So this is from 2017. Good enough. It'll be a little bit off because inflation is wild. But $10 in 1940 would have (laughs) been... $10 in 1940 is equivalent to a purchasing power of about $175 in 2017. So
1: $175 a week, roughly. Oof. oof Oof-da. Yeah. That's low. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: Not great. And again, remember um artists weren't permitted to sign their strips, writers didn't get bylines, and you waived all rights to everything you did. So no one owned any of their work from this time period. So to go a little more into the shops, uh the main shop that people write about uh like the one that gets like the most page space in my research is uh Harry Chesler's comic shop, which was started in 1936. Mm-hmm. So from Comics, Manga, and Graphic Novels, A History of Graphic Narratives by Robert S. Peterson, um, who for some reason refers to Harry Chesler as Harry Chester, but his name is definitely Chesler.
1: I I referenced him a lot in my master's thesis as well. This was like my main history source.
0: It's a great book, but uh, it's Chesler. His name is not Chester. (laughs) I wonder if there was like a – Anyway. A Chicago entrepreneur, Harry Chesler, opened the first comic art studio in an old tenement building in New York and served up new comic material for Nicholson and a few of the other fledgling comic book publishers. These studios, known as Packagers, operated like sweatshops, where it did not matter what kind of talent or skill you started with, artists could keep their jobs so long as they could keep up with the huge volume of work. In Depression-era New York, it was not hard for Chesler to assemble a team of artists to churn out materials at roughly the same cost as it took to pay the the newspaper syndicates for reprints. It was in these studios where the comic book industry took its germinal form, and many of the contemporary aspects of the comic industry was established from this time forward. The relatively small pay-per-page the comic artists received for their work and the lack of copyright ownership of the works they created meant the system was highly derivative business that rewarded volume and novelty over artistry and originality. Um... Basically, this assembly line format, and you can sort of see, this is where the the sort of division of labor in comics comes from, right? The idea, the, the idea that there is a penciler, an inkist, a colorist, a letterer, and a writer all in the same book. Um, comes from this assembly line style of production that was started to make material quickly and to uh, keep artists from being able to sort of wholly claim ownership of their work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's interesting that that's still so like deeply entrenched in our culture.
1: Right. Oh, so the penciler, the anchor, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, because that, that just started because of like as a way to exploit artists, basically. Oh. <laughs> mm. Because you produce material more quickly if you've got multiple people working on it. And also, no one can say that it's theirs. (laughs) It's true. So now I'm going to jump us ahead into the 50s. So the 50s would have been sort of uh, right around the time just after the sort of the Wortham era scare. uh, A lot of comic book companies fold. From here on out, it's basically just Marvel and DC that I'm talking about. Like all those other companies kind of like. In the early eras, like basically anyone could be a publisher if they wanted to be. And there was like a whole ton of them. And then post the comics code, it sort of became just Marvel and DC and Archie.
1: A lot of that is because Marvel and DC purposely choked them out for competition, which is very capitalistic.
0: (laughs) So it's in the 50s and 60s that we start to actually get contracts. Uh, For artists that would bind artists to work with a particular company exclusively. So this is from um, Of Comics and Men, which is uh, by Jean-Paul Gabier, Bart Beatty, and Nick Noyan from 2009. Um, when Marvel and DC began to systematically promote the names of comic book writers and artists at the opening of each story, the preference expressed by readers for certain of them incited the publishers to bind creator services with contracts that made them employees of the company, but which also guaranteed them better working conditions, even if they did not hold any rights to their creation still. Mm. In an era of struggle for civil and equal rights, the system made the comic book industry one of the most retrograde of publishing environments. Independent of the quality of their work, creators saw themselves systemically wronged as they lost their rights once they changed employers." So this is like Marvel and DC still do this. Well, they'll sign an artist on to be exclusive to them. Mm.
1: Um,
0: but this was pre royalties. So royalties did not exist. And this was also pre artists having rights to their creations. So you signed a contract to Marvel and DC and you maybe got paid better, but you still had no value or rights. And if you left the company, you lost everything. Right. Okay. This is also one of the things I'm going to trace sort of in this timeline is early attempts at um, unionizing, like founding guilt so uh this is also in 1952 bernard krigstein who was a a cartoonist um he founded in 1952 this group called the society of comic book illustrators and he was elected the president of it um so this quote is about that um Bernard Craigstein was not searching to form a guild that would oblige publishers to employ only its members, but the idea of a minimum page payment that could benefit members and non-members of the Society of Comic Book Illustrators was close to his heart. The debate on the nature of the association confirmed the differences in status among the cartoonists. The younger ones were generally more favorable to a union, whereas the older ones, often more established, preferred the idea of a professional association. It also reflected the split that had structured American trade unions since the 19th century between trade unionism, the radical activity of a collective action that resorted to strikes and boycotts, and labor unionism, the doctrine derived from utopia reformism that privileged negotiation to the detriment of any revolutionary action. Mm. This group only lasts till 1953. Um, in March 1953, the turning point, which marks the decline of an organization, took place at a meeting um, over the course of which the office, against the advice of the president, so against uh, Bernard uh wishes, Allowed A representative of the publishers to speak in front of the assembly of members. And I didn't pull the whole quote for this. Mm. Um, I would recommend looking it up if you're curious. But basically, a, uh, a person from – an editor from Marvel came, low-key threatened to fire everyone. Jeez. And so a bunch of people left. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so a bunch of people quit, and then it fell apart. So – there were I, – I don't want to say this is like the first attempt because I'm pretty sure there have been other attempts, but this was like one of the – this was the earliest one that I could find in my research of like a named entity that attempted to start. But yeah. in the 50s, like they said in the quote, this was sort of this turning point of like what is a union supposed to be um and that ultimately kind of undid it. So then, of course, in the 1960s, this is when we get the underground comics movement, which I'm only going to touch on briefly, to note that what underground comics was trying to do, was part of it was a break from commercial publishers and working practices, remembering that this is a time when no one had creator-owned properties and no one got royalties. Mm. So, And they also, the reason I want to talk about this is because they tried to form two different unions. So this is from... um, E. V. Arfman's Comics from the Underground publishing revolutionary comic books in the 1960s and early 1970s, which actually is an essay that came out in February of this year. Oh, wow. So very recent. Awesome. So underground comics were either small scale self-publications or published by independent out of the mainstream publishing houses, which were small and loose organizations, right? We know this. Mm -hmm. The artists also established their own unions, the Cartoon Workers of the World and the United Cartoon Workers of America. True to the disorganized character of underground circles, however, the unions were both ineffective and short-lived. Jay Lynch recalls, there was supposedly a union, but they never do anything. According to Bill Griffith, the United Cartoon Workers of America was only nominally a union. Uh, quote, we had a few meetings and talked about organizing to be stronger and dealing with publishers, but nothing really came of it. We had a few nice parties. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, there are a couple books that ran. Cartoon Workers of, a World, of the World had their own imprints. There's a couple of like uh, underground comics you can get that have the seal on them, but... Again, and I feel like a lot of what I'm going to be talking about are these like very short-lived union moments, and I hope that doesn't come across as me trying to like be be mm. negative about it. It's just the history, and I think it's maybe interesting to think about like what caused these various instances I mean, to it fail. It also
1: is important to recognize that the reason that people are trying to put together unions is that there is no accountability on the side of the companies to actually care about the humanity of their workers, right? They're exploiting workers. Yeah. So even if these, the history of comic unions is one of very short, ineffective unions, the reason that they're struggling and the reason they're trying to get better is the fault of the companies, you know? It's not the workers' fault, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Like it still it shows that there is exploitation happening.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So then in the 19. So this is in um, the late 1970s, again, from Of Comics and Men, quote, whereas previously creators did not receive copyright as long as their work had not been published. The new law. So a new copyright law passed in the 1970s. The new law created a context in which all creators would automatically be the holders of the copyright attached to an original work. This change, which aimed to widen the protection offered to all kinds of artists, had a significant impact on the operations of comic book publishers. They found themselves obliged to obtain the consent of creators acknowledging that the work produced would be considered, quote, work made for hire and that the ownership rights would be retained by the publishers rather than the creators who performed the work. So this is where we get that work for hire freelance language originating Mm. in this copyright law because basically the way copyright worked I think it's changed recently but it's been for a long time that the second you make something it's automatically sort of like copyrighted to you right so original art there's like a long contentious history of publishers uh at mistreating original art um original art used to not go back to the creators the creators didn't own it Publishers would often just destroy it instead of preserving it. Um, it's part of the reason why it's really hard to find a lot of early comic work also mm. from an archival point of view. But in the 70s, this new law made it so that companies had to produce language that would make them still be able to keep the rights. Because work for in work for hire, you give up ownership. Um, anything you produce belongs to the company that you produce it for.
1: Yeah, and they were previously employees of a company, Right. And so work for hire is a freelance position, right? Yeah. And so it's still true today that if you are an employee of Disney or if you are an employee of some universities or things like that, any idea... Or any sort of creation you create while you are an employee of that entity is owned by that entity. Yes. Your intellectual property is their intellectual property. So that is still true... Um, Depending on who you work for. Yeah.
0: And that's why it's important to read contracts.
1: It is really important to read contracts and understand that. And if you can't understand it, you hire someone who can understand it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. So then in 1978, we get the short-lived Comic Book Creators Guild so this is from wikipedia but quote during the 1970s superstar artist neil adams was politically active in the industry and attempted to unionize its creative community adams attempted to form the comics creator guild with a contentious meeting in may 1978 attended by carrie bates howard chaykin chris claremount steve ditko michael gordon artie archie goodwin paul levitz bob mcleod frank miller carl potts marshall rogers jim shooter walt jiminson jim starling len wine and marv wolfman the effort failed to get off the ground and i wanted to read that (laughs) list of names yeah the meeting went badly i tried to look into it more but um all of the articles about it are in the print editions of the comic books journal and i don't have access to that archive
1: oh interesting they gotta be somewhere
0: yeah i'm sure they're findable i just couldn't in the time period yeah but i wanted to uh read that list of names because most of those guys are alive and still working <laughs> um so like i i want to like i want to be clear that like this is now we're in like very contemporary history right
1: 1978 yeah that's not that long ago
0: yeah like howard Chakin is definitely still publishing uh <laughs> frank miller is still like you know what i mean like these people are still around
1: yeah
0: um mm-hmm. most of them and so and also i wanted to point out that don't think there are any women there no yeah but anyway it it didn't it it didn't go anywhere because they disagreed on what they should do so then into the 1980s um we finally get royalties so royalties were not a thing until the 1980s which is wild um so again Mm -hmm. from of comics and men Quote, in November 1981, D.C. announced the institution of a new system of payment under whose terms creators received a percentage on the revenue of titles upon which they worked once sales passed the 100,000 copies.
1: Can you actually define royalties and what the difference is?
0: Yeah. So royalties basically mean that after a certain amount of copies are sold, which is usually set by the publisher, you get back a percentage of what they sell for. So you continue to make money on the property because it's selling well, basically.
1: And the difference is if it was selling well before... You got nothing. You got nothing. And it only went to the company.
0: Right. You got paid for the initial work that you did right, per your contract. So you got your page rate, whatever that was. And that was it.
1: Which is still the case for some publishers. Yeah,
0: royalties are not guaranteed even now. So then in 1986, work for higher contracts were made the norm only at DC and Marvel, excluding Epic, which was a short-lived imprint and several independents uh, like Blackthorn, Comico, First, and Vortex, none of which I think still exist. Other publishers systemically offered creator ownership contracts to creators who worked on characters or concepts that they had developed themselves. So 86 is, like in the mid-late 80s, is when we start getting publishing companies that actually allow artists and writers to retain the rights to their original content. (laughs) Um, Hmm. Or I think, well, it's tricky. I didn't want to get into the whole, like... I have no idea. uh, There's like so much about like um, the men who created Superman and like Joe Kirby and like, you know, but I, I wanted to avoid talking about any like individual big historical things mm. and sort of focus more broadly on like this is what it's like for the majority of workers. Um, The last thing I wanted to acknowledge because, you know, I, I wanted to focus more on the history.
1: Um, yeah, we aren't a news podcast.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but I did want to give one final shout out, uh, in 1988, the creator bill of rights. Um, so this is not a unionizing attempt. This was just sort of like a manifesto, but from, uh, basically in 1988, a group of creators got together, a mix of people working for like the companies like Marvel and DC and people that were doing alternative like graphic novels. Right. Um, Because, again, what I largely focused on here was, like, people doing, like, contract work. So I didn't look so much into, like, alternative, like, graphic novel publishing and things like that. Mm
1: -hmm. Which is in the publishing world, which is in literary publishing, which is just a whole different ballgame.
0: It's like a whole—yeah, it's just, like, such a different—it's complicated. But from Wikipedia, quote, Issues covered by the bill included giving creators proper credit for their characters and stories, profit-sharing, distribution, fair contracts, licensing, and return of original artwork— Um, The signing of the bill spurred Severus creator and self-publisher Dave Sim and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles creators slash self publishers Kevin Eastman and Pierre Laird to sell or continue selling collected volumes of their comics directly to readers via their periodic issues, rather than through direct market distributors selling the collections at comic book specialty shops.
1: Diamond. Yes. That's just diamond. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Comic book professionals
0: that have commented on the bill conclude that it had little or no impact on the comic book industry so i'm gonna put in our show notes links to um scott McCloud's website where he like has some context for the bill because he kind of wrote the draft of the bill okay but i thought it was interesting because it's inter because one it is artists working across publishing so it's not just work for hire folks trying to like come up with a system that works for everyone and it's not an attempt at unionizing it's just sort of a manifesto of like here are the things that we want to have and a lot of them are issues that have go all the way back to the 30s so like the right to full ownership of what we create Mm. the like free move the right to free movement of ourselves and our creative property to and from publishers the right to employ legal counsel in any and all business transactions um, The right yep. to, of to prompt and complete return of our artwork in its original condition. Like these things that literally go back to like the inception are still issues in the late 80s and are still issues contemporarily. Yeah. So I'll put links to like the full draft and context for the Bill of Rights, or the Creator Bill of Rights in our show notes. Um, But yeah, so I didn't go up any... Higher than that because um, it gets kind of splintered into like all the different types of publishing that exist now. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure that Marvel and DC have gone through some legal changes with regards to copyright and things like that. Um, And I will probably bring that up in like a letter to the editor in the future, but that's kind of where I am (laughs) at. Okay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was amazing to learn about the history of workers for. Uh, comic book companies, right? Yeah. So in my section, I'm actually going to do a lot of theory, as, because specifically this theory um really tied together something that I find to be almost the one of the driving forces behind drawing a dialogue and me as an art educator. Yeah, which is the idea of um bourgeois art and proletariat art. Basically, the differences of socioeconomics, differences um, higher and lower classes, something that we've talked about in almost every episode of Drawing and Dialogue. Who has access to art? Who is allowed to be an artist, and who is not allowed to be an artist? So, my education section is now going to be more of a theory section, but hopefully, you'll see why and and like just why this is so really important to future generations. Yeah. So I'm just going to introduce this book. It's called Art and Production by Boris Arvatov. Mm. So it sort of critiques that the individuality of art, the definition of the artist as the individual is bourgeois, right? And if we are going back to our introduction, the concept of the bourgeois is the middle class, Right. right? And that the art for the proletariat the art for the worker is art of the community right Mm. this book defines the difference of bourgeois art and proletariat art in a way that really speaks to me it's important to note arvatov wrote this in moscow in 1926 Mm. during the soviet era it was a socialist state So that's sort of where a lot of this wordage is going to come from. Um, It was published decades later after the fall of um, the Soviet Union. Um, Mm. So this version that I got is actually was published in 2017. So it's still something that people are interested in and find pertinent if it's only getting published two years ago, right? Yeah. So even though it was written in 1926, it's still being republished. Therefore, it is still part of our current context, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some quotes from the chapters and then, you know, I'll chat about it. So chapter one, art requires free independent labor. As a necessary condition. So that's the definition of art. Okay. Whereas the capitalist system either excludes such a possibility or subtracts free creation from the processes of life building. Mm. Under capitalism, art is removed from the worker's possibility, right? Mm-hmm. There is no place for free creation in private ownership production and thus the main current of social development is separated from the artist art falls into the hands of specialists from the intelligentsia Mm -hmm. the intelligentsia being i'm going to throw in a quick definition from wikipedia the intelligentsia is a status class of educated people engaged in the complex mental labors that critique, guide, and lead in shaping the culture and politics of their society. As a status class, the intelligentsia includes artists, teachers, and academics, writers, journalists, and the literary. Mm, you okay. and me. <laughs> oh, yes. <my> <laughs> So if art falls into the hands of specialists from the intelligentsia, the educated, who do not produce material values and who are deprived of any kind of possibility, even with goodwill, of participating in mass labor processes. Mm, So art becomes something that uh, the the special gets to do and not the worker, right? The artist worked for the consumer of the guild society, whereas in capitalist society, his works turn into market goods. The creator is separated from the masses by an impassable line, becoming a refined individualist. Losing his connection with the collective, he learns to see his creative work as something valuable in itself, self-contained, And he accordingly changes devices and forms of work, right? So the sample, remember, this is from 1926. So the example that they're saying is that uh, the artist begins to paint on canvases instead of walls, right? Mm. So paintings on canvases, right? So therefore, it is valuable in itself. It is self-contained. It becomes a, a, a material good rather than something that is for society, Right, which is what art is supposed to be. It is supposed to be something that is for the community, right? Every craftsman functions as the organizer as well as the head of production. And indeed, it is necessary for art. Yes. Okay, so chapter three, some quotes from chapter three Class divisions of artistic production is my summary of this chapter. The workers' movement gained momentum. Only in the second quarter of the 19th century and was finally able to influence the artistic life of capitalist society. Mm. It was impossible for the proletariat to think about producing its own cadre of artists then. Economic exploitation on the one hand and the low cultural levels of workers on the other hand created a situation in which the proletariat aesthetically in their tastes were... Not a word I like, but were enslaved by bourgeois and petty bourgeois traditions. Okay. The then assumed, therefore, that it was absolutely impossible to consciously influence the evolution of art at that time. There was some influence, but for the working class, it was exerted unconsciously. Now, what I loved about this quote, except for the word enslaved, not my favorite, is it is literally talking about what, something that me and e have talked about a lot in early yeah. episodes the difference yeah. between high class highbrow art and lowbrow art and this sort of brainwashing that happens but from the higher classes on the lower classes causing them to believe they cannot be artists and whatever they create is not art, right? Right. Um, And I just really enjoyed sort of connecting that, the higher class, the lower class, and capitalism and the problems that capitalism create and how that is the oppression of the workers who then believe that they cannot create art, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about what E was talking about is that they are workers and what those cartoonists were creating were just not considered art. They were a commodity, right? Commodities would be bought and sold. Yeah. In chapter four, art in the system of proletarian culture. So how can art exist in the proletarian culture? How can it exist for workers or in the culture of people who must sell their labor in order to live? Mm. The question of proletarian art Artistic practice is a question of how such a practice in all of its elements would coincide organically with the methods of social building applied by the proletariat. Now what I love is that what the author is saying is as the artistic practice that is the difference. It is being an artist in to create social building. Okay? Right. So the technique. How can the artist do it? Bourgeois art is craft making, isolated from the social practice of humanity in the realm of pure aesthetics. Now, if you're familiar with art school, if you're familiar with fine art, this should be sound deeply familiar, right? Painting for painting's sake, right? Yeah, art for art's sake,
0: but it's interesting. One, this is so like, it's interesting that he's writing this in the 20s, because I feel like art for art's sake is such like a modernist invention that's a
1: 50s thing yeah Mm -hmm.
0: it's like 50s thing um but also i'm thinking about it's interesting his defining of craft because the way that people use craft you know in the modernist era and contemporarily is stuff that has utility so yeah you have to
1: keep in mind that this was translated so that might not necessarily be the word that was the best choice
0: no, I think it's interesting to, like, re-articulate that craft as that, though.
1: I think what he's saying is it's creating an object rather than right. the social artistic practice, right? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an isolated creating of a product, so craft making. But I totally see what you're getting at. Yeah. The first task, okay, so that is what bourgeois art is, right? Mm-hmm. So the first task of the working class in art is the eradication of the historically relative boundary between artistic technique and general social technique. In order to accomplish this, change radically the classification of arts and their place in culture. So um, what the author is arguing is that proletarian art is socially building, right? So proletarian Mm. art must be built on the principle of the objective. In this case, corresponding with class and universal purposefulness, which includes technical, social, and ideological purposefulness. I love this so much because it's so much (laughs) of what We constantly try to get at with art education, right? Like, why are we teaching people to be artists? It's to teach them humanity. It's to teach them social um, competencies. So many things, right? It's so many things outside of just being a technical crafts person. Yeah, yeah. So a couple more things on how to accomplish art in proletarian culture is collaboration, The proletariat will inevitably arrive at the socialization of artistic labor, the eradication of private ownership of not only the products, this is only an immediate result, but also the instruments and the means of artistic production, right? So remember what we were talking about, alienated by The means of production, right? Yeah. So it's what it is, is sharing the artistic production. So the tendencies of the proletarian artistic production already evident in our day will be natural form of artistic production, working directly for the collective consumer and the subordinated in order in whole or in part to the entire system of social production. This means, first of all, that proletarian artistic collectives Mm. must enter into and collaborate with the collectives and the unions of various branches of production, the materials of which will be shaped by the corresponding forms of art. So... We've talked about this, but what they're talking about, what would be a fine example is zines, right? So the collective can purchase the Xerox machine to create the zines, and then you share, Mm -hmm. and then you own that together, right? And then you share it together. And then also it's corresponding. You're talking to each other with through your forms of art. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm gonna end with another thing that needs to change in order for this working class art is The ideology of artists. Mm. The spontaneity of bourgeois art is clearly impossible within the system of proletarian culture. A conscious and planned culture, just as the working class, it is politico-economic activities and its production program subordinates practice to exact scientific formulation the scientific organization of labor, Marxism, etc. The artistic practice of the proletariat must be built in the same way. So what they are saying is that in um, bourgeois culture, it's okay that art is spontaneous. It's okay that you um, are just struck by inspiration. The muse has started talking to you, right? But when you are a worker, you are at your job nine to five and you must be an artist in a systematic way, right? You aren't. Right. You can't wait for the spark of inspiration, right? You right, must right. be an artist at the time you are able to. Yeah, I get you. And then, so what are some education implications? Let's actually talk about education, right? Yeah. The task of the proletariat is to destroy the boundary between artists and as monopolists of some kind of beauty and society as a whole to make the methods of art education, the methods of general education aimed at the cultivation of a socially harmonized personality. And this is something I absolutely loved, right? So this is something I've talked about with people in my art department. I've talked about this with other art teachers is why is art important in school? And one of the huge reasons why art is important to school is to create a holistic human. Because if they only know science, if they only know math, they aren't going to be socially humanized. They aren't going to be a holistic person who mm. has learned empathy, who has learned right. all these socially binding things. Because we want to cultivate community, right? And the art is yeah. what that is for. Art is to communicate with each other. Art is to create under your own means of creation. And it's also to share that with each other and to come together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Outside of this capitalist bourgeois concept of what our society and money, what it is built upon. I feel strongly that that is what art is not for. Right. Mm -hmm. Art isn't for money. So I'm going to end with a article from 2003 titled Wrestling with Angels, Searching for Ghosts Toward a Critical Pedagogy of Visual Culture from the Journal of Studies in Art Education by Kay Taven. Mm. In this article, Taven argues that K-12 art educators are overemphasizing teaching students how to analyze artwork in the museum setting and are ignoring the popular media that is actually influencing students' everyday lives. This is something we've talked about a lot, but I really like this new writer that I found. Yeah, yeah. While art educators place art from the museum realm at the center of their curriculum, their students are piecing together their expectations and dreams in and through popular culture. By focusing upon certain art objects and authorizing what counts as legitimate culture, art educators help subjugate students' experiences with everyday life. This form of pedagogy supports the familiar concept of culture as hierarchy, with the upper strata as the best and most correct. The art preferences and interpretations of privileged groups reside at the top and those of students' popular culture at the bottom. By inculcating students to existing cultural hierarchies, the canon of high art is maintained as unproblematic. This position disregards the fact that canons are the condition and function of institutions which presuppose particular ways of life. By erasing the politics of culture, educators reify insider practices and privileged myths and codes of classification that, at best, reproduce the status quo. So, um, we are going to move into our conclusions. Right. So what did we learn?
0: Yeah, yeah. And thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. Especially that book. I'm really interested to read
1: it. So like thinking about conclusions, it just but it feels really important to me to recognize that I, me as art educator, I want art to exist outside of the catalyst structure because right. I think the purpose of art for me is to create this community and to create and to be empowered by your own creations and to own what you can. Right. Mm -hmm. And to share that with others. Right. So part of what the introduction was is that there's not this alienation uh, and commodification of your art objects. If you are the one creating it and you are the one selling it to a person that you meet, and you are familiar with your creation, and you completely own it, you are not alienated from that interaction, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's community building is what that is.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so like even if there's a monetary exchange, you aren't selling just some random thing that you're fully alienated from. It's yours. You made Right. It. Right. And I think that is the key difference that I feel like what zine making, what self-publishing, what being a cartoonist is to me. Yeah. So that's sort of my conclusion. Um, What do you want us to mention in our conclusion segment? E?
0: Oh, so something I didn't focus on for this because I wanted to sort of give that historical perspective, but I think is interesting and I want to maybe look into in the future is how labor movements have actually used comics and cartooning as a communication tool. Cool. Which I think fits in really well with what Kathy was talking about. But even like my union, um, we have like a comic zine that people give out. Um, that's just like, I forget. I wish I remembered the name of the person who drew it, but we just, you know, we just hand it out for free as like a sort of a like, Just here's what the union is about and here's why it's important to join unions. And there's like a long storied history of unions using cartooning, um, which I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. I think the animation union actually also just made some comics.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So if you, you know, if you're an L.A. person... look for those. I also wanted to say about what, so even though E went through the history of the comics unionizing, I sort of wanted to talk about what it is that unionizing is seeking, and part of Mm. that is that we are stronger together, right? Yes. So what are ways that we can find that as cartoonists and as educators right mm-hmm. and so their teacher unions is a part of one mm-hmm. um but there's also guilds yes. so i'm going to link to there's the graphic artists guild and what you can get is they have a handbook and what the handbook is is it helps with um contracts which protects you and your rights and Mm -hmm. it also helps with pricing and those prices are shared by everyone in the guild right so it's what you should be getting paid for certain jobs and it includes rights so if you are receiving royalties you get paid less upfront, but if you aren't receiving any royalties you should be paid significantly more right right so if you're wondering what that is, and if it's very confusing to you, there is the Graphic Artists Guild Handbook, which you can get without having to pay guild dues and joining the guild. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then there's also the Teaching Artists Guild. Um, if you're also a teaching artist, this looks like it's mostly isolated in California. I'm not like 100% on what the Teaching Artists Guild does, but if you're a teaching artist or if you're an artist interested in teaching and you're in California, maybe that's something to check out. Um, And then other ways that artists can look out for each other, right, is is always sharing information with each other. What are your page rates? What are your contract situations with companies? Sharing information. There There is no reason for us to keep secrets from each other on how much we're getting paid by large corporations right? It, what would they want us to do is to not share with each other, right? Because right. if you know what other people are getting for their work, you should be, be compensated equally or more, right? Mm-hmm. We are in it together. And in other ways as artists collectives, which we've talked about before, and also agents, right? You can get an agent. Yeah. And what an agent is supposed to do is protect your interests in business deals, Which, actually, this is interesting. So the writers... um, We we talked about the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, right? Yeah. Have you heard about this? They just had to fire all their agents, all the writers in Hollywood, because the agents weren't working for their um, clients. They weren't protecting their rights. They were protecting the rights of other people that they were working for, which is what agents are supposed to not do, right? So those are ways in which we can um, come together, right? Sharing information with each other and protecting your rights with things like contracts.
0: Yeah. On the subject of agents, um, there is a really good list of uh, literary agents that do represent graphic novels that uh, Nikki Smith has put together. Um, So we can link that in the show notes.
1: Cool. Yeah, I will. And then also part of our conclusion segment is also like what did we miss and what we want to talk about in the future E talked about like um how labor movements have used comics as a tool um but also something that we missed is my friend ross hernandez shared this book with me called black marxism it is written by cedric j robinson And what it does is it helps um, place black radical history into the European theory of capital because racism and capitalism are intrinsically tied together in history. And that Mm -hmm. is part of what Marx was missing is that he was in the quote unquote Western area of the world. And so his concept of labor and workers does not include people who were enslaved, which is um, right. a, like a huge gap, right? Yeah. And yeah. so this book, Black Marxism, um, attempts to sort of fill that gap. So that's something that I recognize is a hole in um, talking about capitalism. Um, and that's ho- hopefully something that we can touch upon in the future. Yeah, for sure. So now it's time for Letters to the Editor, our regular segment where we talk about any resources that we want to include that uh, refer to previous topics and episodes, and also any literal um, letters that we get. Yeah. So what would you like to share, E? So
0: the Graduate Comics Organization in my department had their annual conference a couple weeks ago now. And one of our keynotes was actually Dr. Nicholas Salmond, who I have cited on the podcast in episode 12. He wrote uh, Birth of an Industry, which is that really good book that sort of traces the relationship between early animation and minstrelsy.
1: Oh, rad. Awesome.
0: Yeah. So he gave his keynote was on um, sort of his research into early animation and minstrelsy, um, and the project he's working on about the underground cartoonists. Cool, and uh, that's yeah, awesome. He's, yeah, he's a very nice person. So I was very excited that we got to like have him here.
1: Uh, wow, um, I'm, I'm so that's awesome. Thank you. And so we got an email. It's from a teen, so we're gonna keep it anonymous. But um, uh, what they were asking about is any sort of resources for developing a kid's comic program. Um, It sounded like an awesome email. I'm really honored that other educators are listening to Drawing a Dialogue and really using it as a way to question their practices. I think it's really important that we're always constantly questioning the status quo and what we think is true. Yeah. So thank you so much uh, for listening. So I think... The way I can share resources is definitely my education website, comicarted.com. That's where Drawing and Dialogue is hosted. I share um, education and materials that I um, develop because um, together we are stronger. I just posted something recently um, called Queer Topics for All Ages, um it's sort of addressing how incorporating queer topics in the elementary classroom is something that people can get uncomfortable with if you aren't familiar with it.
0: Yeah. And
1: so it's just my attempt at sort of creating an argument for why it's really important that we talk as early as possible with children about queer topics. And a lot of it has to do with um that queer experiences is marginalized and um, that means that can cause kids to be bullied it can cause kids to receive misinformation and school is where kids need to go for that good information right so you can head over to comic art ed and read that. do you have any resources for de- developing a kid's comic program besides I mean literally our work
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say that what I have, I, what I've done in the past, like when I was trying to come up with workshops for when I was working at the RISD Museum and things like that is honestly just Googling and like, just being like, what are some zine comic workshops that people are doing? What are some comic jam games that people are doing? Because a lot of uh, educators have blogs. A lot of people put that information up online. Teachers are very pro-sharing.
1: <laughs> it's our job.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that I have any like one specific resource that I found helpful, but like just googling things like fun comic games to play with kids and like usually you can find lists of things and like kind of steal from that or modify it or play with it.
1: Um yeah, and I'm going to be real. Um part of why I started comic art ed and part of why we started drawing a dialogue is um that the resources available were very limited. So I was really interested in sharing as much as I can and um, sort of deepening the quality of it. Yeah. So that was a very narcissistic answer to give. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like you're doing it all right, you know? Be aware of your social social identifiers, you know? Something like be aware of who you are in the classroom and who your students Mm -hmm. are. And in the end, I feel like the number one thing that you want students to have is fun. So. Yeah. So thank you so much for writing. Um, Oh, well, yeah. So um, I recently was in San Francisco, which was awesome. I did an event at Hub Comics as part of my uh, The Breakaways book tour. Um, cause the book just came out, um, yeah. the but I also got to do, be a guest lecturer at Sophia Foster Domino's class at the California college for, of the arts and talking to them was really great. So it felt like what I, what Sophia really asked me to talk about was the ethics and morality of me as a artist in the world. And I really, really talked about owning your own work. Not working Mm -hmm. for a company that feels bad, making the right choices, making choices that are right for you not working for people who have done like racist or misogynist things in the past, trying to not recreate white supremacy in our careers, right? Trying to make sure that we're working with people of color and that we're uplifting people of color. There's just lots of ways that you can shape your career um, that you can feel really proud of, right? Um, And uh, part of what I had told them was that I'm not financially reliant on art, And that was a personal choice that I made um, because I wanted to be able to create art for my community in a way that didn't mean uh, that I relied on it for my living, right? Um, Right. That's where my uh, teaching income comes in. Um, And that was purposely, um, I purposely shaped my life so I could create art outside of that capitalist structure. Yeah. So I just felt like that talk um, really, really tied in with this episode. So I thought I would talk about it a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you for sharing.
1: So thanks to Downtown Boys for their song, Wave of History. It's off their album, Full Communism. Um, it's the intro to outro um, for Drawing a Dialogue. Um, you can get all their music off their band camp. They are great. Um, the summer is happening, so I think they're probably going to be doing a lot of tours. And also, George, Ooh, Joe to yeah. George, who's in Downtown Boys, is also in Harry and the Potters, who are putting oh, out hey. their first album sent in the in like thirteen years. Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, your turn, I've been talking a long time
0: Okay, well you, are, you already mentioned Comic Art Ed rather in depth But go to Comic Art Ed where our podcast is hosted <laughs> You can get our show notes uh, The citations and whatnot For the podcast on drawingadialogue.com um, You can email us At drawingadialogue You can tweet us at Um, You can tweet me At ehecha At
1: e-h-e-t-j-a And you can tweet me at Kathy G. John um, do email us. Tell us. Tell us your thoughts. Your feelings. Please do.
0: Yeah. And before we, um, I want to mention this real quick because I think I'm not sure uh, if the next episode will drop in time. But I'm going to be doing a zine workshop at Radiator Comics, the po- uh, which is a little like a comic zine distro. They have a pop up shop in Miami for the summer. Um, that'll be in early June. So I think the next dad, the thing, the next episode of the podcast will drop before then, but just in case it doesn't, I wanted to say that I'm doing that. I don't have details cool. yet, uh, though. Neil, so.
1: Neil Bordeaux, uh runs yeah. Radiator Comics, and Neil is all about getting uh, independent artist work, self-published work, and helping distribute that, and it's a wonderful project. Um, and I think yes. he's raising money right now, right?
0: Yes, he is, so.
1: Well, I'll uh, link that. <laughs> yeah, I'll link to Neil, it. Radiator Comics, I'm going to link the, um, r- the fundraising website page
0: in our show notes too. Awesome, awesome. Support support radiator, they're great. Um what are you reading, Kathy?
1: I don't know. I haven't chosen anything. (laughs) You're not reading anything? (laughs) Well I just finished something. I gotta go grab it. Okay. So I straight up totally forgot uh about what are we reading. So I'm just gonna instead of choosing one of my well-curated things that I've read over the course of the month. I'm just choosing ex- like the book that I finished this morning, which is titled <laughs> O oh Maidens in Your Savage Season, which is like a manga by Mari Okada with art by Nao Emamoto. And what it's okay. about is like this high school girls' club of literature. It's a literature club, and they are going through changes in their life and they are starting to uh, have sexual awakenings, and that's what it's about through the the wordy magic of literature. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Yep. So it's titled "O Maidens in Your Savage Season," and it's like really uh, beautifully drawn. So um, yeah, it's by it's published by Kodansha Comics. So, uh, what are you reading, E?
0: Um. So. I had the opportunity to go to an uh, showing of the Ursula K. Le Guin documentary that came out last year with the director who worked for Max was like an editor for Maximum Rock and Roll, so supremely cool. (laughs) Yeah, extremely cool. But so I have been sort of reading, like picking through Ursula K. Le Guin. Finally, and I just finished, or I finished a little while ago, Left Hand of Darkness um which is her sci-fi book um about uh, I mean, she's just doing like really. Int- I I won't summarize the, the whole book because it's a lot, but it's really interesting. Early si- like work on like gender and like uh ge- a gender fluid race of people. Basically, I mean, it was published in '69, so it's not perfect, but like it was published in '69, so fairly radical. <laughs> um, cool. And yeah, that was re- and it's interesting. She's very cool. Cool.
1: I've read her short story collection, which. Um, has some stories from that world um, but yeah. i haven't actually read left hand of darkness it's great so. it's a wild ride i'm sure it's, it's a classic for a reason so i'm kathy g johnson
0: and i'm erie Miss jackson
1: thank you so much for listening and farewell to our volunteers bye